Welcome to the Prize of Possibility podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mitch Ablett. I have a strong belief that the greatest prizes in life are hidden in plain sight. They are the nuances, the nooks and crannies of everyday moments that are easily missed. Join me in these conversations with authors and influencers and researchers to miss fewer of them, to truly claim these prizes. All right. Uh, thank you for joining me today for the Prize of Possibility. Um, I'm here with my friend Jessica Minahan. Uh, Jess is a board certified behavior analyst, and she's also a very prolific uh, consultant and speaker. And she's like a rock star speaker. I've heard I've heard her speak uh, multiple times. And myself liking to do speaking, she like not only does it extremely well, but she's like doing it a lot. Uh, she's done dozens and dozens, hundreds of talks uh, over recent years. And uh, it's awesome to, to have you with me, Jess, and uh, you know, joining me for a conversation today. Let me say one other thing before I let you speak. Uh, she's also the co-author of a very, very cool book, if you haven't read it, The Behavior Code. And she's the author of a follow-up book, The Behavior Code Companion. Um, and so if folks have not had a chance to check those out, they should. Um, but, but Jess, thank you for, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Nice to hear from you and see and sort of see you. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're, we're doing the, the audio thing, the podcast. Yeah, exactly. So, so, hey, I, I have a question that we can we can start with. Yeah. So I know you like to speak these days to folks and it, it tends to be a lot of audiences of uh, school professionals, administrators, teachers and whatnot, correct? Yes, mostly. Definitely. Mostly, yes. Mm -hmm. What What do you think uh, people, and you like to speak these days about anxiety in kids, uh, from my understanding. Yes, you, and how that impacts behavior. Yes. So what, what would you say your kind of 30,000 foot view is of anxiety in kids? Very, very broad question, but how do you think about uh, and recommend people think about anxiety in kids? I think it's fairly misunderstood how it how it presents itself. I think um, the classic ways we think of a nervous looking kind of kid biting his fingernails is not how anxiety manifests through behavior. Um, and I think that can get, uh, you know, quite misunderstood. Anxiety uh -huh. can be anger, anxiety can be oppositional defiant behavior, it can look like regression, a lot of people who have you're working with young kids can see regression, like all of a sudden baby talking, sucking your thumb. Yes. That's a sign of anxiety. Irritability is one of the most common signs of anxiety. Um, acting out behavior, inattention, concentration problems. So um, it gets uh, misdiagnosed. For example, ADHD is the number one misdiagnosis of anxiety because yes. the symptoms are so similar. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it can be you know, the way we treat anxiety um, is should be really specifically. So when we think of a kid as being oppositional, not anxious, our instincts may lead us in a different path. And if we realize that child is really stressed out or overwhelmed, then our yes. instincts would be geared in a different way. So 
I love using anxiety as a lens in which to view behavior because when a kid is dysregulated, there is anxiety in there a little bit. Kids, um, <clears throat> you know, with any kind of challenging behavior, statistically, anxiety is in the mix a little bit when they're having yep. a challenging moment. And uh, it's never more prevalent than now. The rates of anxiety in our kiddos uh, pre-pandemic in the U.S. was uh, 31.9%. So that's one in three kiddos having clinically significant anxiety before age 18. So yes. we can presume since the pandemic anxiety has gone up. And I think it's really important to know the signs of anxiety and then mostly how to address it. So, so much in there that we could unpack. That's super important. You know, one thing I'll, I'll start by uh, responding to what you said is that that, that 30% is just what uh, got picked up in the in the surveys, right? Or the the diagnosed anxiety, let alone what yeah. you're talking about, the like the hidden anxiety that's uh, perhaps very inappropriately conceptualized as you know uh, you know one of the other diagnoses, you know, oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD. So it could be way higher that, and then you add in the pandemic effect. You know, kids are struggling with fear and anxiety, you know, a lot of kids. Right. Yes. yes. And it, um, I, yes, it, and trauma as well. Anxiety, what's anxiety informed is often trauma informed. So, um, you know, some kids will experience the pandemic as a trauma. Some kids won't, as we know, some kids have thrived in distance learning environments, like kids typically with social anxiety, kids with um, performance anxiety, academic performance anxiety have actually done better. Um, I think also the added structure in classrooms, um, yes. given the COVID precautions, have increased, um, you know, kids, uh, you know, ability to do well in smaller classrooms. So it'll be really interesting in September, I think, when COVID precautions start loosening and we go back to 2019 looking classrooms, um, I think that's when we'll see the real long-term impact of this pandemic on our yes. kiddos' mental health. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we want, uh, what I try to do is get teachers as ready as possible with um, a therapeutic lens on um, this is a struggling kid and some of our traditional behavior techniques are actually not only going to be unhelpful, but might even exacerbate the underlying anxiety. Can you, can you say more about that? Cause that, you know, you know, as you know, I, I come at this uh, from a similar background working in schools and, and being in a clinical role, trying to help, uh, you know, kids in school environments that struggle with a wide range of what may be behavior on the surface. But as you're very appropriately saying, behind whatever behavior there might be on the surface, there can be these pain experiences of anxiety that are just hidden. What is it that people, you know, if they have a lens uh, or a perspective that it is not anxiety, how do things get stuck? Like in, like in schools per se, how can well-intentioned teachers and other support staff, you know, you know, get stuck and then end up 
you know, you know, making things worse for a kid in an unintentionally. What do you think? Sure. About that? Well, disengagement has been the most challenging behavior I've heard about this past year. I'm sure you've heard that too. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, because of the smaller classrooms and virtual, we didn't have as many acting out kids, but um, this disengagement, it can, you can view disengagement, you know, a kid with the head down at the desk and not really um, participating in class, uh, poor work production as lazy. You could see that as manipulative. I hear people say, oh, he's being oppositional or he's yes. choosing not to do work. When you have that lens on uh, why the child's disengaging, it sort of leans you more towards punitive measures or consequences, right? Well, if yes. you didn't, you took recess now, so you can stay in for recess and do your work now. Where and and that's going to actually precipitate negative thinking and stress in the child, right? Because now. Yes. Um, you know, we're struggling and now they're getting consequences for that. So I think when you see it as an inability and that behavior is communication and there's something behind the behavior, um, I also, with anxiety, there's five skills that are impacted. So when anxiety mm. goes up, the five skills that go down, one is self-regulation, mm -hmm. one is accurate thinking. So when a kid looks at work, do they think, oh, I can do this? Um, yes. Oh, I've done this before. It'll only take eight minutes. Or do they have inaccurate thoughts like, oh, uh, this is too hard. I don't know how to do this. This is going to take me hours, right? The thinking issues, if you have inaccurate thinking, it's going to lead to disengagement, right? Self-regulation yep. also would. Um, perspective taking is another skill directly impacted by anxiety where kids can misinterpret um, other people's thoughts and feelings. So the teacher mm -hmm. keeps picking on me or she never calls on me or, you know, those kind of misinterpretations. Yes. Or um, executive functioning, your ability to stay organized and manage time uh, among other skills uh, crucial for engaging in work are, are affected when you're anxious and flexible thinking. Yes. So when a kid's anxious and those five skills go down, um, <clears throat> you have to calm that child, get the skills back up in order for them to, uh, you know, engage in work. Whereas if you're reminding them they're behind, you know, common yes. practices or, or what's at stake, that's going to increase the anxiety, drop the skills even further. And that's going to make a situation where they're completely unable to engage. So I, that's, that's super cool. I think that's very important. Those five areas that are, you know, from my read on what you just said, they're all internal. Mm -hmm. And about how the kid is regulating, how they're perceiving, how they're processing things, and right. that the anxiety, particularly the hidden anxiety that doesn't look like the nail biting or the, you know, the shakes or the sweating or the, you know, the fear response on the surface, it's eroding those abilities. And then when you respond with a, you didn't say this, but I'm going to label it as a control agenda uh, you know, response or intervention, like, uh, you know, you know, a consequence or, you know, punishment of some sort or some kind of redirection without attending to the anxiety. It just, it just floods them even more. It erodes those five things even more. Did, did yeah. I hear that right? Absolutely. And I think some common teacher practices, 
Like for example, one skill is self-regulation that's completely impacted when you're, when you're anxious. And we all can relate to that. You get more irritable, you you're, have a shorter fuse, lower frustration tolerance. Um, you get exhausted when you're stressed and you, you know, even if you got enough sleep. So regulation is directly tied. And one common teacher practice is to give movement breaks, right? So frequent yes. movement breaks is on a lot of IEPs and um, it's our go-to. But, you know, we want to ask ourselves, are the breaks helpful? There's an assumption Mm. that they are. But for someone with anxiety, for an example, who is um, dysregulated, um, you know, moving around, rapidly talking, blurting out, you're going to think, oh, geez, that kid needs to get out energy, go for a walk. Yes. Just when we, you can go for a walk and think negatively at the same time. So when it's a negative thought, um, behind the dysregulation, the movement breaks may actually be unhelpful, right? Interesting. So you can go for a yeah. walk and be ruminating about mom's, you know, mom and dad getting a divorce. Um, I was I was called in for a girl who was picking her skin very badly. So there mm-hmm. was, you know, her hands were bleeding in class, and they said, "Oh, we're giving her a break from work, and we're letting her draw in color because she's an amazing artist." She says it's helpful. Yes. And when I watched her drawing, she's still picking at her hand the non-drawing hand is picking at the other hand and Mm -hmm. she could never get back to work so that's a really good thing that we don't always notice is can she re-engage and she could not and when I interviewed her I realized she was being flooded by negative thoughts while she was drawing and and you realize you can draw and think negatively at the same time so she was thinking things like I'm so fat and ugly everyone hates me I can't believe I said that this morning I'm so embarrassed ruminating over it you can worry and draw you know mom was coughing this morning I bet she has COVID she's just not telling me Uh, so when it happens after um so of course she couldn't go back to work right and so that happens to us if you've ever been really preoccupied by something and you try to read a paragraph you know you have to reread it three times sometimes to comprehend it that's how hard it is to go back to work so what a lot of our kids with dysregulation it's really thought-based dysregulation Mm. and so just like when we can't sleep at night, we either read a book or watch TV. And the reason we do that is it distracts our thoughts long enough. We can regulate, calm, and go back to sleep. Right. You stay on the thought or thoughts, you're going to stay awake. So same idea in school. I teach teachers to use a cognitive distraction or a thought break. Yes, I love that I thought just, break. Yeah, yeah, the way I describe it to kids is that your brain is like a remote control. I like this metaphor. you stuck on this channel. You have to change the channel to calm down, right? I love that. um, You know, we have calming corners in school and elementary schools, you know, uh, which will come back after COVID's restrictions are lifted and go back there and calm down. The misstep there is the kid's really angry and is sitting Mm -hmm. back there thinking about all the, what's making them angry and they often come back less regulated, right? Or not regulated. So um, cognitive distractions like, um, Where's Waldo books, I spy books for little kids, you know, sports trivia, Harry Potter trivia, um, Star Wars trivia. You can teach kids to count all the green things in the room, think about, uh, do the alphabet backwards, um, you know, and you can say to a kid, go back there and calm down in the calming corner. Here's a hidden picture, change the channel, come back on a different channel. That's more of a life skill to teach the child. It's actually going to show you more regulation. So it's, it's an example of um, a well-intentioned go-to strategy for regulation, but that is not anxiety informed to do 
to do movement breaks for everybody. I think, I think that is so important that, you know, by and large, the vast majority of professionals, uh, teachers, other staff working with kids and, and parents who may be listening, they, they're wanting to offer this thing, this break that they assume, and I'm underscoring that word, you know, is going to be helpful. And yet they're not for perhaps very complicated reasons. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. They're not dialing in. They're not attuning to what the actual experience of that kiddo might be, that particular kiddo to benefit or not from that thing that they're putting in place, like the break that you're talking about, the movement break. What, what is that? Or how can we think about the adult side of it? What are the barriers to people being able to more readily tune in to the, the anxiety undercurrent for a kid and not assume? Right. Well, partly I think the challenge is teacher prep programs offer zero or one courses in behavior management. And mm. um, I've taught those courses and they're usually classroom management, sort of that general, not what we're talking about today. Right. And almost no coursework in mental health or neuropsychology. Yes. And so teachers are um, using the knowledge they have to assess the problem. Whereas actually they need the information about anxiety. This is an invisible um, you know, disability. And so yes, you can't yes. look at a kid who's dysregulated and know it's thought-based dysregulation. It's going to look the same as any dysregulation. So um, I think part of why it's confusing is because, you know, I don't have the training to understand that there could be an internal component to this dysregulation. And also, um, you know, I think in a busy classroom, we don't always assess whether the break is working. So when I have big groups of teachers, I will do a poll that comes up on the screen and just say, what percentage of the breaks is the child definitely calmer and more regulated after? Mm. And no yes. shock to you, I get 20%, 25%. And it's often the first time we've thought about it, right? So why yes. are, why do we keep giving something that's only 20% effective? Yeah. Um, I think in a busy classroom, there's an assumption um, that's uh, perpetuated by colleagues and school thinking um, that breaks are helpful and movement yep, breaks yep. are helpful. And so um, we don't look for the data. Is that true? Um, yes. But once teachers start thinking about that, like, then then that leads to, and I think, you know, that's why you and I both do so much teacher training is when they do have this information that's going to arm them to make an assessment about behavior, the why behind behavior, um, you know, in a more sophisticated way. I, I think, I think, yeah, uh, your, my perspective, you're, you're nailing it. It really does start with training. It, it probably also stops, uh, starts and stops with, uh, with the administration having a, a good understanding. If we're talking about schools, uh, you know, the, the leaders really getting this and then bringing in the training and not just to check off a to-do list, like we did behavior management training. But we're really going to build uh, the word I like to use is, you know, a mindset uh, in our staff to really be looking behind behavior, to be looking at the data, which I think is so important. Instead of just doing the same old thing, uh -huh. how how's it actually playing out when we do this? And if it's not playing out the way we are intending it to, why do we keep doing it? And, right. and what questions do we need to ask? 
So right. the, the mindset seems super important and, and hard to train, uh-huh. but it's very close in for the adults involved. How are they perceiving things around them with the kids? Right. It's, it's true. And, um, and I think it's not any teacher's fault. I think there's a common understanding that breaks are helpful. There's other, other um, processes too, like incentives, right? A lot of schools use incentives and parents use incentives, but um, when anxiety goes up and those five skills go down, incentives do not teach skills. So Mm. all the incentive is going to do is increase your motivation. So if you said to me, can we speak in French for the rest of this webinar? I'll give you, you know, 500 (laughs) bucks. I would want the money, but I cannot speak French. So um, it wouldn't change my behavior. You could make it a million dollars. I wouldn't start busting out with French because um, it's a can't issue. And I think that's another fundamental misunderstanding is that behavior is willful choice. Mm. Um, Whereas if you think about behavior is due to an underdeveloped skill and and with anxiety, these particular five skills that I mentioned. um, So incentives is not going to teach that. So we get inconsistent results from incentives. Well, he was really into the sticker chart last week, but today he didn't didn't seem to care or with older kids, you know, he really wanted good grades. He asked me for extra credit yesterday and today he's not participating. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. That means when the kids calm enough and the skills are up, they might meet their criteria to meet the incentive. But when anxiety spikes or their trauma triggered and those five skills drop, now they no longer can meet their criteria to get the incentive. And so, and the incentive is not going to help you when the skills drop and the kid's anxious. So what we need to do is really um, strategic skill building. And I think an understanding that uh, misbehavior is due to an underdeveloped skill is also a great mind shift for schools to start moving towards. It would just move us inherently, you know, away from incentives and, and more into an inquiry. Well, why? Um, is he not engaging in work? What skills do you need to engage in work? So for example, I would ask teams and I do a protocol with teams. I teach them what 10 questions to ask before you, Mm. you know, make a suggestion. And one of those questions is about underdeveloped skills. And so I'll say, well, when can he initiate? And they'll say, oh no, he never initiates. He's in the bathroom. He pretends he can't find his pencil, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And then my next question is, well, how are you teaching him to initiate when he's overwhelmed? Oh, love it. Yes. What skills, what strategies, if I pulled him aside and said, what are your three strategies for initiating when something looks hard? What would his answer be? And of course I get radio silence because we didn't teach that, but that will totally make, explain why the behavior is still persisting. Right. Um, Incentives never taught him how to initiate when he's really overwhelmed. So when we, um, you know, I think another shift that I try to work with with schools is, you know, what's the skill required for this situation? Does the kid have the skill? What, ha- how have we taught that skill? And that's what will lead you to behavior change. And do you find this is super important, super, super important, particularly as we're, you know, knock on the uh, non-existent wood around me here. I have glass around me here, but as we're coming out of COVID, <laughs> And kids are, you know, back in school, back live with their teachers. You know, how, how, how do we, how do we get around this? Because I, I hear this a lot. I'm sure you hear this a lot. This all makes sense. Um, I'm slammed. I have to meet all of these academic standards. I have no time 
to ask all these 10 questions, you know, be great. I'll go to the training, but I have no time to really stand around and ponder what is behind the behavior for this kid. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you respond to that for, for people listening, uh, in terms of, you know, the time piece or the demand piece? Well, I was a teacher, which is helpful because, Mm -hmm. um, and I was in public, two public school districts, um, big urban districts in Massachusetts for 13 years. So I was in classrooms every day. I got a lot of pushback from teachers. You know, this is too hard. This is too complicated. And so what I have found successful is when you take what's happening in the classroom and just make a slight shift. So for example, the example of breaks, instead of a movement break, we're going to do a cognitive distraction break or a thought break. So mm-hmm. um, that's just a little shift, doesn't take a lot of planning, does, is not too hard for a teacher. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, another way to look at that is, you know, sometimes we have these behavior systems, especially in elementary, we have sticker charts and charts yes. and stuff like that. And older kids, it's privileges, you can, you know, high school kid, you can be on the sports team if you're grades or a certain level, blah, 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 whatever incentive we're using. One little shift or like, you know, mini first step. Um, so it doesn't feel too overwhelming is just shift the emphasis of your incentives onto skill practice strategy use. So what I recommend to teachers is if you have a behavior, social, or emotional goal for a student or students, mm-hmm. please consider one to three strategies to go with that goal. So you don't want a goal with no strategies because you're only incentivizing the kid and that's not going to show skill building over time and improve sustained improved behavior. So um, one to three strategies to go with any goal. And then I like teams to think about that's where the incentive goes. So if you really want to use incentives, I would put the incentive on, did you change the channel and do a thought break and get right back to work point, Mm -hmm. right? If you put the reinforcement on, did you use a strategy? It sort of forces us collectively to use strategies, talk about strategies um, like we do in academics with behavior, social, emotional, um, coach a strategy preemptively, suggest a strategy. Um, So I think it's, it's a shift. So not to throw out your behavior charts, but just to shift the emphasis, um, I think feels more doable for yes. teachers. Um, I have been that all the strategies like the break when I said, um, mentioned that I give to teachers, um, are very easy to do in a busy classroom. And, uh, because I've done it myself and I've had teachers, you know, trying these things. I have a lot of fancy clinical strategies that, you know, a teacher would never be able to pull off. That takes too much time. Right. So um, I think, you know, making sure teachers get the information about what, about, you know, how to build these skills in really practical ways is also um, key. I, th- I think that's so important. And and I could see where you having been in the classroom, been in the schools, um, it, it informs this. I, I do think in my own experience, it is super important to dial into the experience of the staff. Mm-hmm. And and not just say, okay, here, guys, you have to overhaul your mindset. You have to do a completely different approach. Go forth, you know, <laughs> go forth and right. prosper with this. Right. Because they, then they'll they'll throw out all of it, including the pieces that would be super helpful to them and actually make their their work easier. Right. And perhaps way more. I'm super focused on this for folks. You know that it's not there's not so much burnout that you actually feel like you're impacting these kids more and more and more yeah. and then you really like this is why i became a teacher 
because I'm resonating with them and I'm teaching them stuff and not just the academics. I'm teaching them how to regulate, how to live, how to manage themselves. That's right. Yeah. And you see real, I mean, when I, the feedback I get is, oh my gosh, it worked like right away, you know, like yeah. for example, um, transitions go very poorly. You, I mean, you probably mm -hmm. consult on transitions all the time. And one of our, uh, most go-to transition mornings is the five minute countdown, right? So that's a mm -hmm. common teacher parent thing, five more minutes. And we're going to, you know, clean up four, three, two, one. Yes. If you get anxious and you drop executive functioning skills, or if you have poor executive functioning skills in general, um, we're making an assumption that the saying five more minutes is enough information for that child to make an adequate plan based yes. on the allotted. We used to say five more minutes to three-year-olds and five-year-olds, and it's not even developmentally appropriate for them to judge time passing like that. Right. So um, it's so what I tell teachers is don't assume that skill is there, especially if chronically the kid is not stopping on time and transitioning on time. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite questions to ask kids after, you know, a teacher says five more minutes, I go over to the kid who clearly has a terrible plan and just say, what's your five minute plan? And I encourage mm. teachers to ask that question to kids because then you hear the data right to yourself where the kid says, I'm going to finish this huge chapter book. And you have, you have an opportunity to say, whoa, that's like a two hour plan. Yes. Um, let's go back. You know, with parents, they often give a time limit on, on video games. You can have one hour of screen time or sh shut it off at five o'clock yeah. and the kid's halfway up the mountain. And that's going to be a big argument. Um, whereas if you check, I may in, have a little personal experience, with this. <laughs> every parent, every parent. And so, whereas what would supposed to happen is five minutes before five o'clock, the kids should think, oh, I don't have time to climb that mountain. Let me make a different five minute plan, you know, and that's yes. what they're not doing. So if you check in and say, what's your five minute plan, what's your 10 minute that. plan, and then you have a chance to correct it. Um, and then also in your direction, I encourage teachers not to make an assumption, say five more minutes which means you can do two more math problems. That should be the direction, not five more minutes and then see what happens. Um, five more minutes, which means you all, you all get one more turn. Five more minutes, which means you have one more vocabulary problem. When you give directions like that, you're, you're skill building actually. The more you say to a kid, what's your five minute plan and correct them, you're developing the concept within the kid. You're not making an assumption that their non-compliant behavior is due to choice but that they made a terrible five minute plan. And then, and so we can actively coach them. Um, and that's a small thing. That's really easy for a teacher to just add the action steps, five more minutes, which means one more math problem guys, right? That's an easy little add on yes. that will, that will sh you'll be much less disappointed in the results. So when, you know, we don't make assumptions that it's willful behavior and look at what's the skill, do they have the skill of five minutes? If I supplement this skill, you know, and teach them the skill, uh, that's where you start seeing results. I, I think that's so important. And, and like you said, it's just that make that small shift that's doable time wise and, and you know, in, in terms of demand for the teacher. And then it's it's reinforcing for them. Right. They, they do it. They they see the effectiveness of it for the kid. And I would argue the uh competence that they feel the efficacy they feel right uh the meaning that comes from hey i'm i'm bringing it as a as a teacher right and, th and then you get them curious right about wanting to do more what else can i do that's like this right
versus right. you just dumping it on them. You not not you you, but like you know administrators or whatnot. You need to do this whole you know positive behavior support curriculum right. without any sense of how they can show up to it themselves in a way that feels doable, and then intrinsically right. want to show up to it. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, making it doable does respect their, their time and this, and the stress it, it, you know, teachers don't have the right training for who's in their class. When you add up, you know, 30% of the class has anxiety, seven to 10% of ADHD, 2.5 to 10% of depression, um, you know, tra trauma is, it can be up to 75% of like, uh, when you add it up, the teacher has very little training for more than half their class. Yes. Um, and uh, so, you know, that is, it's a very hard um, profession and not acknowledged enough. And so, um, <clears throat> but so when you make it practical, I think it does respect the the job that they do have, you know, how, how many balls are juggling at all times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I think, you know, we folk, we're, we're talking a lot about the, the kids and their, and rightly so, their behavior and what's behind their behavior. But I think we're also always talking about what's behind the behavior for the adults involved. Right. Uh, and this, this is my predilection, you know, uh, to, to really, you know, attune to the adults experience so that they are learning to build the skills to regulate, you know, those five areas that they're feeling supported and to use, uh, you know, you know, Dan Siegel's term, they're feeling felt mm -hmm. by their superiors and then they're getting needs met and they're more able to show up to changes uh, yeah. in their own performance, their own uh, routines. Right. Um, I, you, you know, my penchant, Jess, you know, I'm, I'm all about the mindfulness stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear your current take on that. I, I think it's a huge topic. We could do multiple episodes around the interface between uh, behavior analysis and behavior management and the mindfulness uh, movement, quote unquote. Right. right. Um, I do. I'll start by just saying I think it's so important for the adults involved to be supported in learning to be fully present. Yeah. uh with their their students uh with kids that you know you're gonna do the assumptions until you have skills to be able to stay in your own reactions and not jump to those conclusions right. um and so what what's your take on the whole mindfulness approach to things and how it dovetails with what you're talking about well, it does um, reduce anxiety, right? So if we're talking about anxiety in those five skills, that, that same phenomenon is happening in the teacher. Mm. Um, I love the metaphor of a soda can, right? So if, if I um, you know, had two Diet Coke cans and I uh, shook one up before you entered my house and then offered you one, you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at the cans, which is shaken. That's often true of kids and of teachers, we don't really know what's going on inside that soda yeah. can. Um, <clears throat> and those five skills are what's going on. When anxiety spikes, those skills drop. And that's exactly what's happening inside the teacher as well. So yeah. mindfulness will allow the anxiety to stay down, the teacher to be able to be a little more cerebral about mm -hmm. what's going on in behavior and I'll take it a little less personally, right? So yes. when you start getting anxious, um, you know, self-regulation drops, that perspective taking drops. A lot of teachers feel 
very attacked by kids, right? That's a personal kind of feeling and that leads to other kind of emotional decisions. So mindfulness um, really can support um, the reduction of anxiety, those skills staying up in the teacher themselves so that they can access some of these tools as well. Because it's all about assessment. When you see a kid doing something, we have to make an in-the-moment assessment and then respond within seconds. Yes. And the assessment is often what doesn't go well, right? right. Um, so, and when you're anxious and not mindful and, and um, you're misperceiving, you're more likely to misperceive and take personally and, um, <clears throat> you know, have a bigger response um, <clears throat> as well, right? If you're, yes. if you're mindful, you might you might have, you might be able to access humor. You might be able to, um, you know, give directions in a, in a much more nurturing way. Your, your whole um, presence and nonverbals are calmer and it would just facilitate, um, you know, an appropriate response and, and, and response from the kid and the whole interaction will go better. I, I, I love that. I, I agree. I think, I think when, uh, adults can slow down. And by slow down, I don't mean you go sit on a cushion for 15 minutes and close your eyes and follow the sensations of your breath. Like, excuse me, kids, I need to go <laughs> over in my nook behind the desk and meditate. You know, you guys, you know, have at it. It's right. about in that second or two right. that with a bit of practice and not as much as you might think, you don't have to go sit in a cave for 30 years and, and meditate to get to this place. Yeah. You just, you can learn to pretty readily take that breath, drop into a sense of an awareness of kind of a meta awareness of what's happening in your own reactions in your body. And then that thought like that kid's really manipulating me. Oh, I'm having the thought that that kid's manipulating me. Yeah, yeah. And then I wonder and then curiosity can show up. What's what's behind this for this kiddo? Or what what else might I do? What might I be missing? Mm-hmm. And and that that comes out of that second or two of space right. that doesn't take forever to learn how to do that. And then like we were talking about before, right? You get that, you get reinforced by it. You show up to that and then you can use humor or you can just wait a bit and then you learn something that you would have missed otherwise. And then you're like, I, I need to slow down a bit. Yeah. I, I, I really think there's a lot of, you know, I know you talk about this, others talk about it, um, but yet we really need to find ways to really infuse this mm. so that, that staff are learning that it's okay to slow a bit. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be aware and get curious. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think even asking questions to kids is a nice way to stall a response, like give you, give you a second, Yeah, you know, yeah. what did you mean? How? Um, I notice you're not, I notice is a really good person. I notice you're not getting your work done. Mm. Um, what's going on today, right? That that will just give you the minute to sort of think about it, not jump to a conclusion. The kid might have insight. Um, you know, some kids don't answer that question, but a lot will. Um, and that can slow it down too. Another just go-to, which is not exactly mindfulness, but um, I teach teachers like whenever you're in doubt and you're, feel like, you know, uh, your back's to a wall or whatever, you know, whereas the kid's having an oppositional moment, 
is validating the kid's feelings is the mm. best reflex to have. And you actually can like develop that as a ready reply. Yes. If you just constantly review that. And that also gives you the second, um, you know, if, if the first, you know, I love um, uh, uh, Paul Axtell wrote a book called Meetings Matter. And the gem of the quote I took from that book is he says, he gives us advice on complaints. And he says, complaints are just a poor way of communicating a hidden feeling and a hidden mm, request. I love that. And if you translate that. the complaint in your head to that hidden feeling and hidden request, it will help you be much less irritated by the person saying it, right? You almost translate, translate it. Yes. So for um, teachers, I tell them behavior is just a poor way of communicating a hidden feeling and hidden request. And if, if you develop, you can really rehearse an automated <clears throat> um, reflex to yes. the first thing out of your mouth, validate the feeling. If you just look at the behavior, there's that hidden feeling. Hidden, if you validate that feeling, it's the most helpful reflex to have because it does deescalate the kid. But I think it also pauses things a minute to yes. give that teacher a minute to, to regroup and um, reassimilate as well. You know, I, I, I think that's super important. You just need to give yourself a, a, a few seconds at least a minute yeah. and uh you know there was a colleague of mine at uh, at manville at the therapeutic school where you know i worked for a long time that that said uh, hurry up and wait mm-hmm. you know that there's a, a there's this rush that comes out of uh you know that lizard part of our brain fight flight freeze that leads to the assumptions in my opinion mm-hmm. that uh that wants us to just launch right in and then what do we end up launching in with consequence or redirection or something that does not usually help but to hurry up and wait and you know I, I like to say to people you know note to the kid that you know I'm you know and and with curiosity right I'm, I'm wondering what's up I'm wondering if something might feel stuck for you I don't know I could be wrong let me know that that I don't know I could be wrong let me know what's true for you gives mm-hmm. the kid the permission to correct you as to what they're actually experiencing. Right. And, and that's not a default for most of us, uh, right. whether we're teachers or with our own kids, we don't default to that curiosity. Right. Um, Absolutely. I think question asking, validating, those are great first responses to have um, and would lead to a, a, a better interaction for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you hear this. One one thing I've heard over the years a lot, and it's totally understandable, is that if I validate their feelings, if I if I don't jump in and point out what they're doing and put in a consequence, then they're going to walk all over me. Um, I'm not going to be able to control my classroom. They'll perceive me as a pushover. What would you say to that sort of thing, which I've occasionally heard people, you know, you know, voice about their concerns about taking a more kind of slowed down approach in the moment? Yeah, I think um, powers, there are certain kids who are really talented with power struggles, particularly like they'll, they'll bait you right in. And teachers do feel like when they're, when they say something and the kid says, no, I'm not doing that publicly, right, that they have to, um, you know, save face and make a communication. The first thing I would say is um, preventing a public uh, 
you know, uh, standoff is the, is the best yes. approach. And um, there are common teacher ways, like a public um, direction with an authoritative tone is the most likely to get opposed or defied, right? Yes. So if you say, pick that up, take your hood off, right? In front of other kids as the most likely to go poorly. Yep. And it's just helpful to sort of tell teachers that that is a not a helpful recipe. Um, whereas if you wrote on a sticky note, uh, mm. you know, um, please stop tapping your pencil. Don't, I don't even give eye contact, just kind of quietly put it on the kid's desk. I, and then I, you're going to think I'm joking, but I'm dead serious. I tell teachers to kind of run like six to eight feet away, get really busy, <laughs> you know, be talking to another kid, be, you know, yeah. you know, grab the phone, drop open, and run, open, yeah. open the door, open the door, be talking. Um, Cause I love the Spanish proverb. If one will not, two cannot argue. Mm. So when you're not there, there's, you know, it's, it's not going to fodder a argument. Um, giving the reason before the direction is another simple switch teachers can make. For yes. example, if um, the worst three words out of your mouth is pick that up, because if the kid says no, you cannot enforce it and you're your upper creek. So one right. thing I would do if, if, and I'm jinxing everyone, they're going to say it tomorrow. But um, <laughs> if someone spills pencils all over the floor, um, we usually say pick that up. Um, and then we give the reason because I don't want to fall. But the kid, right, when you're when you're stressed, right, you've been called out on something, uh, kids misperceive. She's picking on me that, yeah. you know, she has bad intent. She, you know, she's being disrespectful. They interpret it wrong. Whereas if you give the reason first instead mm. of the direction. So, oh, I hope I don't fall in these pencils. Oh, that's good. Could you yeah. pick these? You know, I don't want to fall and hurt myself. Could you pick these up? That is going to go so much better because you didn't allow for that um, distorted perception. You didn't call them out. You're reasonable human. You're not just demanding on them for no reason. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time with teachers on getting, and again, when you write it out and I give them little cheat sheets, this is how to give a demand yes. and you kind of practice it. Um, you know, I think prevention is really the way to go in those situations. Um, another one is time and space. That's what we don't give enough um, and leads to a power struggle. Whenever you imply the word now in a direction, uh -huh. you are setting yourself up to be in a, you know, tough situation. So um, for example, say a kid spills, you know, something and you say, pick that up and you realize, oh shoot, I'm in a power struggle. Yes. Just add time and just say before lunch. And move it over with your oh, foot. Oh, I love that. So now yes. an hour, you give that kid an hour to neurobiologically calm down, get their flexible thinking back up, be able to rationally think about that demand and, and pick it up. So there's lots of, um, you know, you know, endless ways uh, that teachers can prevent those situations. And I honestly think that's the better way to go. And that's more neurobiologically informed, anxiety informed, because we didn't get the kid um, spiking and anxiety, losing flexibility. And that's what a power struggle is. They are not going to take their hood off because, because that's now right. they're stuck, you know? And so, um, I, I would really, and, and again, we have to just rehearse it and practice it because it's so easy to say, pick that up. And that's a habit we have, That's right. um, but you can easily switch the habit, um, by through practice and through just practice. having, having explicit, you know, ways of giving it differently. So, do you know what I really, I, a, I love how practical those, those little nuggets are, but you know, the other thing I, I heard in that really great specific example of the spilled pencils 
is that when the the adult responds hey i don't want to slip and fall on that you know you know could you uh, pick that up for me in the next you know five minutes or next hour whatever whatever put that time piece on it mm-hmm. uh, but there's an assumption in that right that first part there's an assumption that can be that's in that can be intentional uh from the adult to the kid i uh, this is the subtext in that that i read i assume that you are a good kid right. that really wants to show up to caring and that right. you care about me you right. would not want me to slip and fall right and and i think that kind of uh you know because i i think that's largely the case you know kids want to be you know they want to they want to rise they want to be seen for being a, a good kid yeah. And and so that assumption is the kind of assumption we do want to show up to with kids that if we if we let them know, hey, I see you, you know, as I like to say, peekaboo, mm-hmm. you know, even if they're not a baby and there's a there's a kid in you that wants to show up. Yeah. And and that that actually uh, can add more oomph for the adult that you know, assume that and then see what happens. See what right. happens. Right. I'm yes. gonna I'm gonna one up you with the sticky note thing. You know, oh, I, here in addition to putting down on the sticky note, and then I love that you know tucking you know write it and run yeah. so that you know, you're not there for the power struggle. I love that. But in addition to noting the thing that is stuck or the the demand you know mm-hmm. thing, you can also build a habit. And I've been telling people this for years because it's not our default we default like you said to the negative stuff or the problem stuff but to do the the right and run around something that you note that that kid did show up to Mm. hey i wanted you i wanted you to know that it matters to me that you're here today on a sticky note put it on their desk walk away yeah really important love that and and then you know that's that's what you know you've heard me talking about that's what i call prizing a kid it's like peekaboo i see you yeah and my only agenda right now is not to control your behavior or get you to perform in a certain way i want you to know it matters to me that you're here that you're showing up in some way that i think if you're doing that in addition Mm. which is not a time demand thing right it's easy to do that kind of thing it's just a habit if you do that in addition to the things that you're talking about, that, that's a powerhouse yeah. uh, for a teacher. So. Right. Well, I think also what you're doing there is um, being respectful of the way you give praise because public praise is the number one go-to of teachers. Yes. And it's the most uncomfortable way to receive praise. And um, a, a lot of kids reject praise and, and you know they look uncomfortable they say the opposite that's not true or they even sabotage stop working or yes. act out and um despite that evidence i think we still continue with public praise and i think um i i, w- I would love teachers especially in september to pull a kid aside and say when i'm proud of you how should i let you know oh i love that and um you know should i give you a sticky note should i do a thumbs up can you come and check in at my desk before you leave class so I can just, you know, give you some feedback. Um, that is so uh, crucial for some kids. And, you know, you can do an inventory in the beginning of the year. And I show a lot of my trainings of, you know, questions you can ask kids, including how do you like to be praised? What makes you 
um, what has been, you know, not a great experience you've had um, with teachers in the past or, um, you know, what's your favorite subject and also what's, what are your interests and that can just facilitate relationship building right if you're wearing a baby Yoda t shirt the first day when the kid <laughs> walks in because you know, you're already in a good situation and, um, but asking questions also about what is your comfort level with um, this, what helps you the most if you're stuck, you know, those questions, um, even young children can have some insight with um, that is, is, is nice. And, and in a survey in the beginning of the year or at any time is, um, you know, a nice way for the teacher to just carve out the time to ask questions and get the student's voice um, before we make assumptions. That That is absolutely beautiful, Jess. The, the, asking a kiddo, how do you want me to praise you? How do you want me to let you know I'm proud of something that you've, I've, I've never heard it framed like that. Um, I think that's absolutely beautiful because it, again, it has that assumption embedded in it. I am so focused on you having an expertise on yourself. Teach me about how to show up to what works best for you. Right. And, and that is super cool and, and easy, yeah. easy to do if you if you get in yeah. the habit of doing it. Yeah, right. And culturally, culturally responsive also, you know, some kids, there's lots of reasons why kids don't like public praise. And um, so we're just, you know, avoiding any possible assumptions there as well. Yeah, I, I you know, in the writing I've been doing, I, uh, you know, kind of you know, riffing off of all of the research uh, that Carol Dweck and others have done around growth and fixed mindset, right? That, uh, you know, I, I, as I like to put it, we have an, an epidemic of uh, the praise and blame paradigm uh, that even, you know, praise itself, which can sometimes be done in a way that kids, it, it lands well for them. It, it often doesn't. And particularly when kids are feeling the contingency of it they're feeling the control element of it mm -hmm. and particularly if they have a learning history of not feeling very seen by adults right uh, they can push off on the praise or like you're saying it's done publicly yeah. but uh you know what i you know what i call prizing it's an antidote to that because it's so present moment it's so without agenda other than connecting with that kid yeah. And that question that you put out there just now, that is, that's prize worthy. That's really cool. So I love that. Hey, hey, listen, I, I know we're going to run out of time here. Very, you know, what do you see as like future trends? Uh, you know, what's, what's coming down the line? I know we're kind of in a chaotic time, but it, you know, what do you see as coming that would be important for people to start orienting to, or what do you think's coming next uh, for folks? Well, I do think we're not sure of the toll the pandemic has taken on our kids yet. And um, I think what we want to make sure is one thing, learn what, what was helpful about this year. You know, some kids mm. were thriving that didn't. And then some kids have fallen behind and, and have not been able to access. And sort of, I th it would be great if schools could take a moment to sort of assess why was this added structure helpful, right? Yeah. Um, you know, unstructured time is where bullying occurs and all kinds of problems. And so this added structure, oh, it did reduce some of that dysregulated uh, behavior, bullying behavior. Um, you know, uh, why was online um, learning 
easier for some kids and not others. And so I think it would be lovely to take a minute to look at that and learn um, and incorporate what worked. Um, I think we also um, are so ready for everything to be over that I would caution us from um, sort of feeling ready to move on because the anxiety, pandemic-related anxiety, um, is going to be with us for a while. Like, for example, um, three topics that um, are likely to sort of trigger anxiety for a while for kids because sickness and death came very close to them, mm. which um, you know is a very abstract concept for a lot of children don't don't have access, you know, haven't had firsthand uh, experience with that or haven't worried about their own health or safety in a way that we are doing. And so um, the three topics that we want to be aware of because um, you know before the pandemic, accidentally we could traumatize or re-traumatize kids um, through curriculum choices. Like for example, if I was reading a book and I said the word stepfather, that could trigger a kid in the class without me knowing. But the three topics, illness, death, and germs Mm -hmm. are um, going to elicit a whole bunch of information that would not, it wouldn't, they would not have in 2019. And that's going to be for a while. And it's actually helpful for schools to know those, that there's three things that we can be aware of. And I would love to see um, us prioritizing mental health in kids. I think we have a a national awareness of anxiety um, and a worry about it. I just worry it's going to fizzle as things go back to normal, but we have an opportunity to prioritize mental health, teach teachers how to do emotional check-ins with students. So for example, if you're a biology teacher teaching about germs, you know, to be checking um, quickly on your students, write a, you know, put your name on the top of a sticky note, write one through five, how you're doing on the bottom, collect them, um, anything like that. So, uh, you know, incorporating that as part of our, um, school life and putting mental health at the forefront, um, would be, I hope a trend that's coming. We definitely are having national conversations about it and we have an opportunity to start putting it in practice and, um, really incorporating, um, mental health best practices in, in everyday school uh, moments. I, I think that's so important because I, I anticipate that you are correct that you mean all of us, whether we're a teacher or school professional or just in general, right. We're, we're, we're so looking to just cast off COVID and all of the implications of it and just, you know, get back to life. Uh, it's like Rip Van Winkle waking up from a nightmare. And while that's totally understandable, we do need to, like we've been saying, start really asking some questions and really get the data, really understand what these patterns have been and then how to address them versus just launching in like, uh, like it didn't happen, like it was just right. a nightmare. And right. I, I, I think that's super important. Um, and really what worked, what actually worked and what didn't and be willing to ask those questions. Yeah, uh, so. we have an opportunity to, we shifted education so much this year, um, you know, not that we plan to. So now we have an opportunity to not just shift back to, um, you know, school as usual. We have an opportunity to shift back into something different. And yeah. I hope that is more, mental health informed. And- yeah, and t- totally. 
huge need for compassion all the way around, like, you know, not blaming one another for the things that may not have worked uh, or that uh, may have been well-intentioned, but, you know, really did not click. And to just, you know, people were doing the best they could with something that none of us have experienced before. And, and we all need to have compassion for uh, errors that may have been made and uh, for the pain that all of us have experienced. And some have had downright trauma through, right. through death, loss, uh, exposure to lots of really tough stuff. So right. I, I think that's super important. You know, so, so, you know, just a super important conversation, practical, you know, very thoughtful. How can people find out more about you and your work? Like, where can they go to, to find out more about what you're doing and what you're about? Um, my website pretty much has everything. It's jessicaminahan.com. And uh, yeah, there's article, everything's free on my website, articles, podcasts, um, uh, and there's links to the books as well. Um, yeah, I think that's a good place to, and I do a lot of speaking when it's open to the public. I put the, put it on my website as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much. It was awesome to have you and uh, looking forward to a part two at some point, because I think we're just scratching the surface with a lot of stuff. That would be great. Nice to speak with you. It's been a while and maybe I'll even see you in person at some point. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Prize of Possibility. I hope you found things of benefit here. If so, please consider giving this show a positive review. Such feedback is not only great to hear, um, it also really helps elevate the show so that others can find benefit from it. Please stay tuned. More episodes, some great guests on the way so that we can together discover these true life prizes in daily life. Take care.